And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today, and thank you for uh, spending time. You're getting back into the swing of things, aren't you? I thought so. I hope you had a good weekend. It's always nice to have an extension to the weekend. Wouldn't it be great if every weekend was a three-day weekend? I would vote for that. I, I would almost say that we should turn that into law somehow. How, do, how would we do that? Um, i got to get thinking. I, I'll get thinking. How's that? All right, I'm in Proverbs today, and I love Proverbs, and I'm in chapter 10, and it says in verse 8, The wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. And my guest coming up, Ken Samples, is uh, very wise. He's a philosopher and theologian, and he is not a chattering fool. So let me take 60 seconds and bring on Ken Samples. the show. I am delighted to be uh, having Ken Samples uh, join me once again. He's been a regular guest on the show, and I love it when he joins uh, the show. He's got a terrific um, way of thinking biblically and make it makes it so accessible to us listeners and students of God's Word. Um, he always wants to um, help us think critically, and I appreciate that. He's a theologian and a philosopher. Ken, welcome back to the show. Hello, Bill. You're very kind to have me on, and I always look forward to it. Thank you so much. You know, Ken, recently the Barna Group, they conducted a survey asking questions about the Bible to determine if people truly believed what the Bible said, and the results were this. Four, only 4% did. And professed, wow. professed, professed Christians didn't do much better. So if a professed Christian does not believe what the Bible says, it's going to be pretty impossible for it for him to have a really authentic biblical worldview. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, uh, you know, the, the Bible is uh, a revelation from God. It is to inform our fundamental beliefs as well as guide and direct our lifestyle. And so it sounds like we have a lot of work to do. It really does. And one of the questions I have is, why do so many Christians not have a consistently biblical worldview? Yeah, that's an important question. I I think there are probably a couple different reasons, but let me mention one in particular. I, I think that the church, uh, while it's many things, uh, it's a place of fellowship. It is sometimes, uh, you know, a hospital, uh, a place where people get counseling. It is a place uh, for missions. But one thing that the church, Bill, I think has to remain, it has to remain a school. It's always more than a school, but it can never be less than a school. And that is, I, I think that we need to help Christians to think worldviewishly, to, to think about the big picture. What's my view of God, my view of the world, my view of morality, my view of human nature? I, I think that Christians need help in recognizing what a worldview is, how 
Christianity paints out that picture. And uh, obviously there are many other things that we could say. Uh, uh, people need to make a commitment. They need to commit themselves uh, to embracing the Christian worldview. But I think that our churches overall could do a lot better job in kind of helping people to think worldviewishly. I know a lot of people would like to maybe vote in a compatible way with their worldview. Well, how do you do that? Or how, how can my citizenship uh, live it out more compatible with my Christian worldview? Well, how is that done? So I'm going to put uh, some of the burden back upon uh teachers like me, pastors, and try to encourage everybody to, to help Christians think in a worldview way. I have a book on the topic called A World of Difference. It's chocked full of information about the Christian worldview, compares it with other worldviews. If that can be of help, it would please me if people would, would consider reading it. Tell me the name of the book again, Ken. It's entitled A World of Difference. A World of Difference by Kenneth Samples. That would be the book that you would want to go get your hands on. So, Ken, do you think that there's more people nowadays concerned about what the world thinks of them versus what God thinks? Well, I, I think that that's, a, I think that's probably a, a universal human challenge. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think human beings, uh, by their nature, by their fragile condition by their brokenness, their humanness, seems that we often tend to be quite concerned about what other people think of us. But from a biblical point of view, the most important relationship you can ever have and constantly have day by day is your relationship with the Lord. Uh, and we take our identity, we take our mission, we, t we take our vocation in life according to what the Lord has to say. So yeah, I think that that's always a challenge, but it's not just a challenge for the average churchgoer. I think it's probably something all of us, Christian leaders, uh, etc., need to need to face up to. Mm -hmm. In Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, Ken, it says, "Fear of man will prove to be a snare," and probably safe to say that we need to, as believers, remind each other that we are not of this world. We're in the world, but we're not of this world. That's that's right. Uh, we are in the world, and this and our place here is important. We have a calling. We have a vocation. We need to take our responsibilities uh, in this world seriously. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a husband. I'm a father. I work in a Christian ministry. I'm part of a church. But your underlying point is a very critical one, and that and that is uh, my ultimate citizenship, my ultimate belonging, the family that I belong ultimately to, and the identity that I bear um, is as a child of God who is made in the image of God, who is fallen, but now has been forgiven, and I am in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I have a guest, uh, a regular guest, Dr. Greg Borgon, and he was leading me through this idea that, you know, your, your beliefs are important because your beliefs become your values, and then your values inform your worldview. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the role uh, of one's worldview and how that plays when it comes to evaluating things like evidence and facts and kind of the basic stuff. Yeah, very, very good. Um, well, I, I, I would put it this way, I think, Bill. 
I would say that Christianity teaches that there is objective truth and reality. I mean, we live in kind of a postmodern relativistic age. People say things like, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. Or people will suggest you need to have your own truth. Well, we have, uh, we have access to our beliefs, but, but truth from a Christian point of view is objective. It is distinct. And we want to correspond our beliefs to that particular view of truth. Uh, in terms of reason and evidence and facts, uh, Christianity is a factual religion. I mean, if you look at the Gospels, you look at the epistles, John, Peter, Paul, are, are and Jesus himself are always telling us that uh, we can investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. Uh, to have faith in Jesus Christ is to know something about him, what he did on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. And so uh, the Bible talks not only about moral virtues, like telling the truth, being faithful to your spouse, uh, loving your family, but it also talks about intellectual virtues. Um, here I'm thinking of, of the book of Acts, where the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they checked the Old Testament. They were checking truth claims. Um, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test all things and hold on to the truth. John in the epistles says, don't believe things too quickly, but test them. So the idea of a worldview informs our views of, again, these these cluster of beliefs, these big views, God, the world, morality, human nature, uh, down to things like beauty, etc. But Scripture encourages us to be discerning, to be, to be reflective. Um, I think at times there is um, the thinking that Christianity is, is more of an of a, an experience or a feeling. Now, don't get me wrong. I like warm Christians. I like people who are loving and caring, and I aspire to be one of those very people. But we also need to be reflective and discerning. Uh, we need to think about Christian doctrine. We need to compare and contrast it with what other people believe. So these are some of the things that I get into in my book. I introduce logic and critical thinking. I introduce I introduce how to test worldviews. I talk about the content, uh, about the Christian view of God, the Christian view of man, the Christian view of morality. So I think that this is really golden. I think that this is a helpful way of, you know, a person's recognizing their worldview and then looking at secularistic naturalism, looking at theistic Islam, looking at pantheistic monism. I think that these can be very helpful so that people understand that people look at the nature of reality very differently. Mm-hmm. Ken, if we think of Peter stepping out on the boat, walking on water, and if we think of him focusing on Jesus, would we consider that to be a good example of a, a biblical worldview? And then when he started looking down at the water and his own feet and he started to sink, his worldview shifted? I think that that passage is a is a very powerful experience, not only for for Peter, but for the rest of us to to appreciate and to recognize. I mean, the word faith in the New Testament, the verb is pistuo, the noun is pistis, and generally we can define it as confident trust in a reliable source. 
Um, I think that that's a very important definition of faith because it's not just trust in anything. I don't just trust anybody or everybody. Um, to put my trust in someone, I have to know who they are. I have to have confidence in them. And to have faith in God is, is to recognize who he is, how different he is than human beings, who Jesus is, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God who's come into the world to take away sin, who was, was raised from the dead. I think that Peter uh, is a good example of uh, we need to constantly be recognizing our need to trust, to rely on God. Uh, and when we look at circumstances, uh, that can cast a lot of doubt in our life. And so in many ways, the foibles that Peter has are foibles that all of us have. Mm-hmm. Ken Samples is my guest. We're going to take a little break and be right back with lots more. Delighted to have Ken Samples back on the program. Reasons.org is where you go look at his website. Also, he has written several books. The one we're chatting about today is A World of Difference, Putting Christians, Putting Christian Truth Claims to the Worldview Test. And as I go back and uh, Ken, just uh, bring up one more time that the Barna Group found out that only 4% believe that the Bible is true. Now, professing Christians do a little bit better than that, but not much. So safe to say that in Satan's arsenal, he is going to have as one of his key components that the Bible is full of errors and not to be trusted. I think that that is something we can we can take as a as a truth. Um, Bill, I think that when you read Scripture, when you see the realm of the devil or the demonic, it often has to do with truth claims. Uh, you know, we, we often typically think that, you know, the devil is involved in the world of the occult. And of course, uh, I think he does empower all of those spiritual uh, practices. But from a very practical sense, um, you know, we, we need to discern truth and and uh, we need to be very careful in, in following uh, what God's word reveals. And so the Bible is... Uh, it is our manual. It is our manifesto. Uh, and we believe it's the inspired word of God. And we have a lot of work to do to get that percentage much higher. Mm-hmm. Ken, in your book, A World of Difference, you give six uh, major components that make up a worldview. I, w- I would love for you to indulge us with those. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, again, let me let me suggest that there's a way of looking at a worldview, and I'll, I'll give a couple ideas, and then I'll look at the, the six particular areas. Um, one way of looking at a worldview is to think of it as like a pair of glasses. Um, the worldview is like the lens of the glasses. Everything has to come through that lens. 
your view of the nature of reality passes through that. that that's kind of an analogy for a, for a worldview. When we put on our historic Christian worldview, then we see the world the way God has revealed himself uh, in historic Christianity. Another way of thinking of a worldview is, as I've said, a cluster of beliefs about the most important issues of life. Uh, and so one of them, one of the major components of a world would, would be your view of God. Uh, this is your theology. Uh, the Greek word theos is God. So theology is the study of God. Uh, Christianity talks about there being one God, but this one God is distinct in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we believe in the triune God that distinguishes us from both traditional Judaism and Islam. We also believe that God has all of these infinite and eternal attributes. He is omnipresent, omnipotent. He has all power when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to presence, uh, etc. And so one of the critical things is knowing God. God is the creator of the universe. Um, God is infinite and eternal. He has no limitations or boundaries. Uh, that is a great encouragement. The more we know about the Lord, who he is, uh, and I need to underscore his love for us. Uh, this isn't just a, a God who is a creator and all-powerful. This is a God who loves us, and he sent his son into the world to take away our sins. And so in the cross, we see the love of God. Uh, a worldview also has a particular perspective on the nature of reality or the, the world in which we live in. Christianity has a lot to say about God's act of creation, that God created a real world. Even though this world is stained by sin, it's still real, it's still good. One of the reasons why science began in Christian Europe is because Christian theology affirmed the goodness of the world and that exploring nature's mysteries would speak to uh, God as the, as the great uh, engineer, the great architect, if you will. So, so Christianity says something about God, but he also talks about the nature of reality. Creation would be a critical component in that. We could also talk about another component. Uh, in philosophy, we talk about a word, epistemology. It's a big 50-cent word. All it means is the study of how we know things. Uh, Christianity talks about knowledge. Christianity talks about faith and knowledge. Uh, for example, when I have faith in Jesus Christ, I know certain things about him. To have faith in the Lord means I know who he is. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Uh, he came into the world. He performed miracles. He lived a perfect life. And so uh, faith includes knowledge and is compatible with reason. Christians in the first century, the apostles, and many centuries later, gave facts, evidence, reasons to believe that Jesus is the Messiah that he rose from the dead, that he is, in fact, the son of God. So we begin to include these kind of elements in a worldview, our view of God, our view of reality, our view of knowledge. Then we can talk about morality. Uh, morality has to do with, with what is good in life. 
morality has to do with with a prescriptive ought. And so Christian ethics uh, are a very critical part of the faith. In fact, Bill, I like to say that the Christian faith is, first of all, a set of beliefs, a section, second, a collection of values, and then third, a way of life. Well, those values are, are very important. We believe that God created everybody in his image. I mean, this morning, the traffic was pretty pretty thick, and I was a little frustrated, and I, I wanted to think ill of my neighbor. <laughs> but that thought came to me that, you know what, as frustrated as I may be because I'm caught in a, in a traffic jam, people are made in the image of God. Even people who are not particularly friendly to me are made in the image of God. Um, we talk about the idea of, of uh, striving to love our neighbor. So we kind of cash out what is the Christian morality. It's objective. Everybody has inherent dignity and moral value. And, and then we can, we can move to anthropology, uh, which is just the study of human beings. And Christianity has some great things to say about human beings. I like what Pascal said. He says, human beings are great and wretched simultaneously. Yeah. We're great because we're made in the image of God, but wretched because of our fallen condition. This has explanatory power. So in that chapter, I kind of unfold these ideas uh, then I spell them out what they mean from a Christian point of view, and then I do some comparing and contrasting with other major competitive worldviews. Oh, that sounds wonderful, Ken. Let's pick that up after the break. Ken Samples is my guest, and we are chatting about his book, A World of Difference. We'll take a short break and be right back. Back to the show. I'm chatting today with uh, past, a philo- philosopher and theologian, Ken Samples. He loves uh, helping people understand the reasonable, reasonableness and relevance of Christianity's truth claims. He's written a book called The World of Difference, Putting Christian Truth Claims to the Worldview Test. And we're just going through uh, six major components that he's listed in the book that make up a worldview. And we last left off on anthropology. And I think, was that number five or six? Yeah, I, I might have been might have been number five. Okay. Uh, let me add one more. Uh, we could talk about uh, history. What um, Christianity talks a lot about history, and and Christians believe that history is moving in a linear direction. That is in a straight line. If you think of uh, Eastern philosophy, Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, it's often cyclical in a circle. Reincarnation. Everything moves in a circle. But in, in a biblical, historic Christian point of view, God creates the world. So uh, a way of thinking about a worldview is there is creation, then there is fall, followed by redemption, and then ultimately consummation. So this linear perspective that God's creation and revelation is moving through various stages. So those are, those are one way of looking at uh, what I call major components of a worldview. Mm-hmm. 
So, Ken, I love this worldview, and I love that you can help us understand this better. Let me throw this into the mix. So, sometimes in Bible studies, people are more interested in what your interpretation is. What do you feel about the text? You know, instead of receiving an understanding of what God's Word says in context, does that worldview in that instance cause more harm than good? Yeah, this is, a, I think, a, a very important issue. Um, we kind of have two words. We have the word exegesis and eisegesis. Uh, exegesis, E-X, eisegesis, E-I-S. Exegesis is the attempt to lead out the, the meaning of a particular text or a section of Scripture. We call biblical scholars exegetes. They're leading out what the author intended, what, what the context is, what the words mean, uh, how to understand it. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is very different. That's where you read into. The word eis in Greek means into. Uh, you don't want to read into a passage your interpretation or your particular take. It doesn't mean that your view isn't uh, important. It could even be correct. But ultimately, we believe that God's Word is a revelation from the Lord. It is a message from the Lord. We want to approach it uh, carefully. We want to look at what words are used. That's where it can be helpful to learn some New Testament Greek. You don't have to be a, uh, you know, a Greek scholar to read the Bible. Our English translations are very good. Uh, study Bibles often have very helpful notes that go along with it, but we want to lead out the meaning of what Scripture indicates, and we do that through looking at the words, looking at the context, trying to understand what the intention of Paul or John or Peter really was. And these are very important principles that I hope that many of our churches teach people, where uh, we can help people have a, a greater fulfillment in reading Scripture and understanding Scripture and then attempting to strive to live out what's taught there. Mm -hmm. Ken, is it even possible when we're immersed in our own worldview, how do we test it for validity? Yeah, this is, this is very important. And by the way, the Bible talks about testing. Um, again, uh, Paul says, test all things, hold on to that which is good. John tells us, don't believe every spirit, uh, because there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. Some of the worldview tests that we can talk about, and I do in my book, uh, one of them is the coherence test. Uh, coherence has to do with, is this worldview logically consistent? Uh, that is, is it internally consistent? If a worldview has lots of contradictions and conflicts, that's a, that's a deep red flag that there's something fundamentally wrong here. Now, uh, coherence or logical, internal logical consistency isn't the only worldview test, but it's kind of the first one because a lot of worldviews really lack logical coherence. But once it passes that coherence test, then we can talk about you know, the idea of explanatory power. I mean, one of the remarkable things, I think, about the Bible, about historic Christianity overall, is its explanatory power. For example, human beings 
uh, again, this this Pascal idea, um, the Bible seems to say that that human beings have remarkable qualities. Uh, we're very we're different than the animals, not merely different in degree, but different in kind. I mean, we can do mathematics, we can do science, we can do logic, uh, we create music, we we have all of these aesthetic qualities. But on the other hand, human beings also seem flawed. They they have a, a brokenness. Uh, they have a deep-rooted sense of selfishness. Well, how does a worldview explain human beings, the human condition? Does Christianity do a good job of explaining the world? So that second worldview test would be, does it possess real, real solid explanatory power? Uh, and I think Christianity scores uh, very highly on that test. Another test, and there, there are many, but here's a third, is it livable? Um, a worldview has to have a level of livability. Um, and what I, what I mean really by that is, is this, a, is this a worldview that helps us to solve our fundamental problems in life? Is it a worldview that succeeds in transforming people? So these are three. I talk about, uh, I think, nine in my book, and I kind of number them. But uh, coherence would be very high at the top. Uh, explanatory power, livability. These are these are kind of things that can tip you off as to which worldviews are viable and which are not. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, Ken, when you uh, talk about someone's worldview and they they might say something that's just not in keeping with God's moral law, and yet they profess to be a, a Christian, would you would you think in your heart that maybe just the Holy Spirit has not yet convicted them? of that sin and of that thinking, or they just have not become properly equipped uh, to understand how to be obedient to God's Word? How do we start living this out when we're talking to people? Yeah, very good. I, um, I always like to remind myself that I'm in the biggest room in the world, the, the room for improvement. Uh, <laughs> and so all of us, all of us, no matter where we're at with the Lord, no matter how long we've walked with Him, uh, all of us are striving. We're seeking to grow. We can, you know, I, I think, for example, uh, one thing about myself, I, I hope I'm not alone in this, but I have a tendency to to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize my own faults. I, I think that is a sign of a, a moral brokenness. And, and I need God's word to remind me that... Uh, you know, maybe I would to be very careful about taking the speck out of my brother's eye when I got a log in my own. Now, that doesn't rule out the fact that sometimes Christians uh, hold ideas that are not consistent with the Christian worldview or hold moral perspectives that are incompatible with, with Scripture and historic Christianity. This, of course, is a time and place hopefully in churches where we can grow and we can challenge one another uh, in that regard. But there, there is uh, an objective, uh, there are objective teachings and truths in Christianity, and hopefully the goal is that we conform ourselves to those, not try to pull those truths to our way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could, you could explain just a, a little bit more about how 
beliefs will be, you know, working together. We can't pick and choose what we want to believe. Uh, we got to be understanding of what God, what God's word teaches, and then that have that be our worldview. Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, you know, the study of Christian theology, um, it, it flows in various categories. We talk about theology proper. That is our beliefs about God, the nature of God, who he is. We have then Christology, who is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have hamartiology, which is the study of sin. That is, the categories of Christian theology are set up in such a way that, in many ways, they correspond to our to our big picture worldview kind of uh, perspective. And so, I want to know uh, what is God like. I want to know who Christ is. I want to know what He has accomplished on the cross. I want to know my relationship with Him. I want to know my relationship to others, to the church. Um, and again, these would would be teachings about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, uh, the nature of human beings, the, the nature of uh, the church itself, future things. So in many ways, Christian theology is already kind of set up in these particular categories, but every Christian, not just the pastor, not just theologians and philosophers, Bill, I think that every, every Christian in their own way needs to be a theologian. And what I simply mean by that is to be a careful thinker about their faith, about Scripture, and about ultimate truth claims. And I, again, think that maybe we can bring that Barna percentage up if we try to help people to think uh, a little more critically, a little more objectively, um, and again, some of these basic principles out of how to get more out of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Ken Samples is my guest. He's written a book called The World of Difference, Putting Christian Truth Claims to the Worldview Test. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with more in just a minute. show. Ken Samples is my guest. He has uh, written a book called A World of Difference, Putting Christian Truth Claims to the Worldview Test. Ken, can, we, uh, can I give you a couple listener questions? Are you in the mood for that? Yes, sir. I, I sure. figured you would be. So this passage, this question comes out of the book of John, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. What does this mean? What is considered good? What is considered evil? Yeah, very good. I I think the clear context of this passage from John 5 is, of course, the, the final resurrection. I mean, when we die at this present time, we go into what we call the intermediate state, that is, our our souls are absent from the body, and we are in the presence of God, awaiting the final resurrection. I think the John passage is clearly a reference to that final resurrection. God is going to resurrect all people, believers and non-believers, and the, there is going to be a great judgment. Um, 
I think the, clearly the reference there uh, in terms of those who have done good and those who have done evil, uh, all of us have done evil. All of us are sinners by nature. And yet through Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven of our sins and called unto a life of virtue. Uh, I think the reference to, to good things is those who believe uh, never perfect, but we're striving to do what the Lord desires. And I, I think, so those are the believers. Those who have done evil are those um, who have not tasted of the grace of God, who have not been covered by the blood of Christ. So I think this is a clear reference to the final uh, resurrection, which will ultimately lead to the judgment. And the judgment is whether you're in Christ or whether you stand of your own accord. And I don't think anybody ever wants to stand in the presence of God without a mediator, without a mm -hmm. Savior. Doesn't it seem, though, that verse, uh, if, you've, if you're reading it for the first time and you're not a, a real student of, the, of God's Word, you might go, well, hey, if you're dead, uh, God will, Jesus will call, and you can come out of your grave, and if, and if you're evaluated as a person who did some good stuff, hey, you're... You're out of the woods. I think you could clearly misread that passage. I agree. That, that's, that's, again, where Bible study involves kind of systematically bringing Christian teaching to, together. But, Bill, uh, I think it's clear there, there are many people. Uh, they may have grown up in religious homes, but a lot of what I call the man-on-the-street theology, a lot of people think, look, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Right. I'm not— I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, so maybe God will grade me on a curve. And if it's they a bell think, curve, and they throw and, out Mother Teresa and the Hitlers, you might stand a good chance, right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of recognizing that all of us before God have broken his commandments, that we're in need of a Savior, uh, that none of us are good in and of ourselves, that we're saved by grace, it's through faith, it's in Christ, and Yes, you can you can misunderstand many passages of Scripture, but that's where you want to have kind of a collective understanding and grow in Christ, basic Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. Speaking of worldview, um, didn't the Pharisees and Sadducees have a different understanding of resurrection? Well, that's a, that is a very interesting uh, question. I think it's true, Bill, that um, in some ways Jesus comes and challenges some of the Jewish religious beliefs of the time. Uh, I think it's clear that some people had a different understanding of who the Messiah would be. Um, one idea was that the Messiah would come and crush the Roman oppression and set Israel apart. Um, and this idea of a suffering servant, uh, a savior who would be, be seemingly overwhelmed by the Roman crucifixion is a very different way of understanding. Um, I guess my response to that very interesting uh, perspective and question is, I think in some ways Jesus had a very similar worldview to the Jewish people of the time, but there were certain things in the Old Testament that he applied to himself that did take Pharisees and Sadducees somewhat by surprise. Mm -hmm. All right, Ken, here is a question from Chantel in John 3.3. 3, of course, it says, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
And in John 6.40, it says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So who looks to the Son and believes in him shall, shall have eternal life. What is the difference between those two verses? Well, I, I would say that, um, you know, Scripture is, is written using different um, metaphors, um, you know, there there isn't merely one way of describing what Jesus did on the cross. I mean, we can we can talk about reconciliation, we can talk about redemption, we can talk about adoption. There are many different uh, ways of describing salvation. Uh, to experience the new birth means that, similarly to the way we were born from the womb of our mother. Now we have been spiritually reborn through believing in Christ as Savior. Or to look upon the Son, meaning that we are, we are trusting in him. We're focusing on him and his word and his idea. So I think salvation is such a great truth that there is never just one way of, of describing it. And so the New Testament and the Old gives us different metaphors of of thinking about salvation. Mm-hmm. Another question that has come up is the uh, stories that have been told and books that have been written about the people who have had um, near-death experiences and they've uh, had a glimpse of heaven or a glimpse of hell. And is there any biblical uh, proof that those experiences um, have happened? Yeah, uh, this is a very interesting uh, area. I have uh, done some studies on near-death experiences. Um, I think there are people, Bill, who have had extraordinary near-death experiences. Um, I I remember reading about one particular atheist. Um, He he was a a leading atheist who... um, uh, was eating salmon and choked and died. And he encountered uh, a being, and that being communicated to him that that he was not morally um, right with him. This is A.J. Ayer, A-Y-E-R. A.J. Ayer was kind of the Richard Dawkins of his time, and he claimed to have had an out-of-body experience. Now, Ayer said, I don't know who this was, but he said, I now believe there's life after death. There are other people who have had near-death experiences who uh, have been able to, uh, while they were unconscious and had no vision of what was going on, let's say in the operating room, uh, undergoing resuscitation, have been able to name the doctors, the procedures, people who were there. Um, Now, now again, uh, that's not to say that all of these experiences are valid, uh, but there are some near-death experiences that seem to defy natural explanation. I think near-death experiences are simply the beginning of the death process. I think we should think of death as a process. These people haven't necessarily passed over, although some people claim to have had uh, encounters with God or with Christ or even hellish type of experiences. But I think once you're finally dead, you are indeed that, finally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I have a listener who has a conviction about 
baptism um, being required for salvation. Can you comment on that? Yeah, baptism uh, is a very important uh, rite in the Christian faith. Uh, some, some traditions within Christendom see it as a, a sacrament. Uh, there is debate and dialogue about what it ultimately means. Many Christians would say that it is a, a sign and a symbol of us belonging to Christ, being brought into the family of God. There are Christian traditions that talk about what we call baptismal regeneration. That is that through baptism, God, uh, God's grace transforms the heart of individuals. I don't know that we can solve all of the discussions and debates about the differences within Christendom, but I think it's clear from Scripture that baptism is important, that Christians should be baptized. Personally, if a person in another part of the world who has very little knowledge of Christ and accepts the Lord and is not baptized, I don't think that that would keep him from salvation. But I think it's important to also appreciate, Bill, that Christians, uh, you know, Christians have disagreements. Christians have differing perspectives. We're not like a cult where we all have to follow the exact same thing. The Bible allows for some differing perspectives. Hopefully we all agree on the essentials. But, but Christians are going to disagree about things like baptism or, or the millennium. What, is it is it pre, ah, or post, etc.? Yeah, those are um, those are issues that people can get quite emotional about, aren't they? I mean, I think of, I think of all the conversions that happen on people's deathbeds, and and all of the opportunities that you know people have to receive Christ as they're perishing. And so, there's probably not an opportunity for baptism, but certainly is a great expression of faith. And the Bible does say it is right to do, and it's something you should do. Um, but I was just, again, agreeing that it's a it's an emotional issue for, for many. Yeah, people are very passionate. Yeah, they are. So, um, Ken, I, I always enjoy when we get a chance to talk. Now, your book, uh, when did this A World of Difference come out? Let's see. It came out in 2007, so it's it's been out a while. So it's time-tested. Uh, uh, there, I'm happy to say that uh, many Christians have read it. I use it as a um, as a textbook in some mm-hmm. of my classes, and I would be thrilled if people would read it and get some good use out of it. Yeah, I would love to be in one of your classes. I feel like I am every time I interview you, or if we were at a dinner party, I would fight to sit next to you. Well, you are a person I really appreciate, and uh, I I think you uh, I, I think you score a lot higher than you think you do when it comes to, to knowledge of the Bible and devotion to the Lord. Well, thanks, Ken. It's really a delight to have you on the show. And thank you so much for taking the time the time to do it. Thank you, Bill. God bless. God bless you. Ken Samples has been my guest. A World of Difference is the book we're chatting about, putting Christian truth claims to the worldview test. You can also go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken and his brilliant team. Okay, that should give you some things to think about and to chew on. I know I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back and listen to that from start to finish because Ken Samples always makes me think. I hope you enjoyed the whole show. Thanks for being with me today. And as you lay your head on the pillow, just just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.